Hello and welcome to the Cancer Kicking Powwow, where we explore the stories of breast cancer thrivers and previvors, and we understand how they emerge victorious and change through their breast cancer journey. And we interview healthcare professionals who understand that there's a whole lot more out there than pills and procedures to live our healthiest lives. Before we get started today, I want to remind you of two things. Number one, hit the subscribe button down below so you never miss a powwow. And also, don't forget about the upcoming Cancer Kicking Summit at the gorgeous Oceanfront Terranea Resort, where I would love to see you visit in person, or you can join us via on-demand video. Go to pinklotus.com forward slash summit to learn more. Okay, I am so excited to present to you today, Dr. Neil Barnard, a nutritional researcher, a New York Times best-selling author, who is about to hit the NYT list again with his amazing book, Your Body in Balance, of which we will talk a lot about. He's also founder of the Barnard Medical Center and founder of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. If you do not know, pcrm.org, I am a staunch supporter of everything that they do, and I'm on the President's Council. PCRM is a 12,000 physician strong group whose focus is on bringing about health and change in a new way. They have done everything from implementing policy change and other legislative changes to literally successfully suing the U.S. government over something like, mm, hey, America, you know that whole eggs increase your cholesterol thing? It actually ain't a thing, says the egg board. So my friend, Dr. Barnard, thank you for being a rebellious leader of change. We welcome you to the Cancer Kicking powwow. Thank you and right back at you. I have been a big, big fan of everything that you've done. You have touched so many thank lives you. and saved so many lives. So it's a pleasure to be talking with you. All right, so here's my first question, and I think all of our viewers will really, really want to know this. Beginning all the way back in Fargo, North Dakota until today, was there ever really this like huge aha 180 turnaround moment when you thought to yourself, you know, this path that I'm on, it really isn't a path that leads people to their healthiest lives that leaves the planet, the soil, the air, the water, the animals in the best state possible. But you know what? I, I actually think I do know what will lead to that world. And I am going to spend the rest of my life being a loud and forceful voice of change in that direction. Was there such a moment or was it a gradual turnaround? Um, well, there was a moment, but it, it wasn't actually super pleasant. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, um, I grew up in North Dakota, as, as you mentioned, and uh, the year before I went to, the, to medical school, I had a job in a hospital in Minneapolis, and it was down in the basement of the hospital um, in the morgue. And nobody ever wanted to go in there. Um, nobody ever changed the phone in the morgue. People wouldn't want to work on the plumbing because they were afraid of this place. <laughs> anyway, but my, my job was to... Uh, when a person died in the hospital, my job was to prepare the bodies for the examination and the pathologist would come and do the autopsies and I would help. So anyway, one day we had a guy who died in the hospital of a massive heart attack, probably from eating hospital food, but that's another story. 
So, so anyhow, um, I, I had, I pulled the, the body out of the cooler and put him on the exam table and the pathologist knew that I was going to go to medical school. So he wanted to make sure that every autopsy was an education. And so he took a scalpel and he cut through the skin and he peeled it back and he pulled this big chunk of ribs right off the front of the chest and he set it on the table. And he said, look, Neil, they, look at this heart. And he sliced open a coronary artery and he said, um, have a look inside. And it was filled with atherosclerotic plaque, which if you, you, you put on a glove and you feel it and it's, it's crunchy. Um, and we looked in the carotid arteries to the brain, same story, and the arteries to the legs. Th this artery narrowing was frightening. And he would say, bacon and eggs, Neil, that's your bacon and eggs. But, oh my God. So anyway, at, at the end of the exam, he wrote up his findings, acute myocardial infarction, systemic atherosclerosis, blah, blah, blah. He leaves the room. I had to clean up. So I put the organs back in the body. I put the ribs back in the chest and I sewed everything up and cleaned up. And then I went up to the cafeteria for lunch. And as fate would have it, they were serving ribs for lunch that day. And I looked at it and I thought, this looks just like the body I was working on. And it smelled like it. And I thought, wait, I thought this is a body. And I didn't become a vegetarian on the spot, but I, I, I could not eat that. And I, anyway, um, I, to me, the, the relationship between what we eat and what kills us suddenly became clear. And I don't know if you call that ethical or scientific. It was more of a gut reaction. And as time went on, I started to learn more about it. And for me, this was a, a shift because I grew up, even though my dad had left the cattle business by that point, um, I, I had driven cattle to slaughter. I had hunted and my first job was McDonald's. <laughs> um, Anyway, for me, that jarred me off my path and started me thinking about things differently. Right. So there's this transition that's more gradual for you. And that's usually how most people come to eat a whole food plant-based diet is they do it for either maybe ethical reasons or environmental or their own health or of a loved one. And they, it's a new way of living and eating and thinking for them. They didn't grow up with it. They're not like, oh, my mom ate this way, my dad ate right. this way. I grew up eating this way, and here I am. It's it's more of an abrupt moment for them. It's almost like this coming to Jesus moment where I was like, I was a drug addict, I was in the gutter, I had nothing else left, and then, boom, 180 turnaround. And people want to know that through this transition, there is a path forward, there is longevity, and you show them that. Oh, ab absolutely. And um, I have to say, I've been doing this for a long time now, and it's it just feels... I, I only wish I'd gotten to it a little bit earlier. That's my only thought. Mine as well. So I want to talk about your body in balance. This is your 19th book, I think, and it's coming out February 4th to bookstores everywhere, Amazon, Target, you name it, go buy it, pre-order, because we want another New York Times bestseller. What I love about your body in balance is that you're not just repackaging an already stated theme you're actually delving into this new area of research and understanding. Basically, we're talking about hormones, right? Which are these biochemical messengers that go coursing through your veins, saturating cells and sending out signals that then alter metabolic pathways for better or for worse to accelerate disease or, or perpetuate health, and that depends on the amounts, right? If the hormones are too much or too little or a Goldilocks just, right? And this balance 
matters incredibly for every process, but we're talking about cancer formation, weight, diabetes, all the way down to just menstrual cramps. So I'd like to know what inspired you to write Your Body in Balance. Was it an anecdotal story, repeated observations of your own, or a compilation of medical research studies? What was the source of the inspiration for this new book? Um, the truth is I was sitting right here at my desk and the phone rang and it was a young woman with cramps. Um, many women have menstrual cramps, but in, in her case, it was just off the scale, cannot get out of bed. And um, I gave her some painkillers, but I, would, I was desperate to try to figure out how to help her to, to prevent it in the future. And that's where I started thinking through nutritionally what's out of balance in her body and how can we get her back into balance. And it worked. And I started then, I did a, a research study on this with my friends at Georgetown University. Wait, sorry and to interrupt, but when you say it worked, what worked? What, what did you prescribe to her in addition to painkillers to get her through the okay, weekend? All right. um, what I did, I, 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 was, I started thinking about breast cancer patients. We have known from back in the 1990s, researchers thought, okay, breast cancer is fueled by excess estrogens um, and the, the female sex hormones. Uh, that increases the risk of developing, say, postmenopausal breast cancer. And also, if a woman has cancer, it tends to fuel the growth. So I started thinking, well, what are, what are, what are cramps? Cramps are the endometrial lining of the uterus, the, the inner lining of the uterus. Thickens up every month. And, and that's because the uterus is the most optimistic organ in the body. Everything, it is convinced. I'm sure this is going to be the big one. And the baby's so, coming, the baby's coming. <laughs> So, so the, the uterine lining thickens up and I start, so she's talking to me on the phone about this misery and I started thinking, okay, I'll bet I know what's going on. You probably have a little excess estrogen on board. Um, and that's thickened the lining too much. And then at the end of the month, the, the disappointed uterus realizes it's not pregnant. And so it then sheds that in, endometrial layer in menstrual flow. But when the endometrial layer is breaking up, it releases these maladjusted chemicals called prostaglandins that cause cramps. So this is all going through my mind. And I thought, all right, we had known from breast cancer patients before that if you greatly increase the fiber content of their diet, their estrogen level will come down back into the healthier range. And if you, so if you increase fiber, cut the fat content, their estrogen level comes down. And if you avoid dairy products, dairy products have estrogens in them. So, so I said to her, okay, would you like to do an experiment with me? And she said, sure. So I said, let me give you a couple days of painkillers, but for the next four weeks, how about this? No animal products at all. That way it's a really high fiber, very low fat diet. And I said, keep oils really low too. Not a lot of fryer grease and stuff. And let's see what happens. And she called me back a, uh, a month later and said, this is, this is really something. My period arrived, no symptoms. And the same month, the next month. The next cycle, like just like that, like cramps one period, no cramps next period. Didn't even know the period was coming. That was it. You know, she, she had, and, and her period was lighter um, as well, but just like no pain at all. And, and so, but then several months later, if she would, if she would, let's say, bring greasier foods back into her diet during the month, then she would pay for it at the end of the month. So that's when I connected with the department of OBGYN at Georgetown. And I said, we need to study this in a larger group of women to see what, what happens. And so we brought in a large group of women and we said, okay, try this. Um, no animal products in your diet, keep oils very low. And we all got together every week and we, we shared 
recipes and cooking techniques because frankly going vegan is not that hard but really cutting the oil is is hard for a lot of people because it's in everything but we found we found several things we found that pms got better i'm talking about uh, bloating and moodiness diminished um menstrual flow diminished and and pain diminished but every woman was different in some cases their their pain was flat out gone in other cases it was just diminished a little bit and there were probably one or two or it didn't do anything um, but overall, it had a very significant effect. Um, so I thought, okay, first of all, two, two things. Number one, how many 15-year-old girls who are feeling rotten and they're going to the store for painkillers um, have this and are never told anything by their doctor about a way to control this naturally? And the answer is... You think- the doctor didn't know. The doctor, the doctor doesn't know. The people don't know. Um, but the second thing is that if if you're having estrogen waves that are causing uh, trouble every single month, then what is that doing over the long term? It's going to be increasing the risk of, of breast cancer later on. So I thought, let's empower people with tools to make this work. And then I thought, but it's not just women. It's men have these same issues. They have erectile dysfunction. They've got infertility issues of their own. They've got prostate cancer waiting down the road. So I thought, okay, all right, all right. Um, the, the study that I just described that I did with Georgetown, I did 20 years ago. And, and doctors have really not thought about it very much. So I thought, I, I need to write my prescription. And so I, I called it your body and balance because it's not that estrogens are, are evil. They're just you just need them in balance. And that's true of every hormone. If you have it too little, it's not good. If you have too much, that's not good. Thyroid hormone, insulin, all of them. You need to be in balance. Okay, so that's incredible that eating fiber can bind all that excess estrogen. And by lowering it, you suddenly don't have so much dysmenorrhea, which is painful periods, or gas and bloating, cramping. But it will also increase the prostaglandins, which lead to moodiness. But there's different kinds of prostaglandins. Some are anti-inflammatory, right? So you got right. your healthy, good prostaglandins that come to play by eating alpha-linolenic acids like flax seeds and walnuts. And then you diminish the unhealthy prostaglandins by avoiding meat and, and cheese and, and dairy and eggs. That's, exa right? that's exactly right. And even the ones that, that are kind of evil, um, they have your best interest in mind. Um, the, the, the ones that, that form in the endometrial layer, they're trying to stop bleeding is, is the way I interpret it. They go to, into the muscle layer and they, they stop the bleeding from happening. So that's in, in theory good, but they overdo it and they, and they cause the muscle layer to cramp up and you feel horrible and they get into your bloodstream and they hit the brain and it's just life is not worth living. Um, and so, so anyway, my, my, my point is, is I just thought with every meal, we're dialing our hormones in one way or another. And I thought, um, let's see if we can help people to to uh, to change course. And it and it's absolutely life saving. I have to say. Um, in fact, let me tell let me tell you a, a brief story, if you don't mind. Um, in in the, in the course of this um, research study that we were doing, we asked all the women to not take any hormone medications, because um, that would goof up, that would, that would confound the study. So, uh, for example, if a woman were sexually active and they were taking birth control pills, then we couldn't really tell if the diet was affecting their symptoms or if it was the birth control pills. So we said to all the participants, if you're sexually active, please use some other contraceptive method. One of the women in the study said, don't worry about me. My husband and I used to want to have a, a, a family, but 
but we're infertile and we've both been evaluated. It isn't him, it's me, I, I don't ovulate. And so she said, we don't use the pill, we don't use anything. We haven't used contraception for years because she's infertile. The second month that she was on this diet, a healthy vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, no added oils, vegan diet. She came into our center and she said, Dr. Barnard, I've got, I got bad news, I got good news. I said, well, what is it? She said, I've, I'm dropping out of your study because I am pregnant. <laughs> she, she, she had a baby, she, she, had, she thought she was infertile, she had a baby, then she had another baby, and then she had a third baby. And this is a woman who, who had, A, thought she was infertile, B, had gone through every kind of treatment and stuff you can imagine. People beat them, themselves up. And so I started thinking, it's not just cramps, it's not just PMS, it's not just fertility, it's all of these things. And to some extent, it's whether you live or die uh, from progressive diseases. So darn it, let's dial that body back into balance if we can. And what I'm hearing you say is that things like PMS and cramping and now infertility can turn around so abruptly after decades and decades of unhealthy eating, right? Leading to monthly on cue, doubled over in pain, can't go to work, can't go to school, can't think straight kind of misery. I mean, that affects millions and millions of women. I, honestly, I used to be one of them. Back in my younger days, I dreaded that monthly menstruation. I was just, I put on my happy face, but whew, three to five days of not happy. Um, and the body's so quickly forgiving that just in a cycle or two, it's unbelievable. All of this from eating more fiber and avoiding animal fat and suddenly Boom, now you're fertile. <laughs> um, and, and for men too. Um, we've brought many men into our research studies. They come in for, for diabetes or they come in to lose weight. And I will never forget, I had a, a musician who was in our study and he had advanced diabetes. He had, he had neuropathy. For people who don't know what that is, you've had diabetes for so long that it's attacking your extremities. Uh, your feet are killing you. And in his case, um, his, his fingers really would hurt. Um, and he would, he, 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 after a couple songs, as a musician, he had to stop and turn his back on the audience and kind of shake his hands out so he could play again. But anyway, so um, he was in our research study and after a month or two, his neuropathy was getting better and he, he thought, I can play again. But then he came in maybe about a month after that and he came and he said, something else happened, guys. So like, what is that? And he said, I'm young again. I said, well, what do you mean? I can raise the flag again. And you, you, <laughs> there's so many euphemisms for, for his erectile dysfunction went away. Um, but we see that so often. And, and in that case, all that's happening is that you've taken the cholesterol and, and fat out of his diet, basically. So the arteries are opening up and they don't need to open very much. Um, you might remember from physics um, that the flow through a vessel is proportional to the fourth power of the radius, which means that if you just crack open those arteries just a little bit, the blood rushes through. And if that's your heart getting uh, no blood, the, the, the chest pain goes away quickly. And if it's a man's private parts, the erectile dysfunction, it's solved. I'm not sure how his wife felt about it, but, um, but uh, for him, he was happy. That is a great story. And it has a great ending. But... Unfortunately, unlike erectile dysfunction or PMS or infertility, cancer doesn't always have the happiest ending. It would be the best day of my life if we could 
predictably say that we now know how to slow stop or reverse cancer, which I don't believe we can do predictably, but it certainly is possible. But the best thing we can do to diminish the toll that cancer takes in this world, particularly when it comes to breast, ovarian, and male cancers like prostate and testicular, is risk reduction. And I believe that the biggest, smokiest smoking gun when it comes to the causation and propagation of all of these cancers is clearly borne out by the numbers. You see, there are these international cancer registries that exist and you can look at them and when you follow them, you'll see that in the 1980s and the 1990s, all of a sudden, these countries that had a historically low incidence of, say, breast cancer, just poof, hockey stick up in the 80s and 90s. What was happening then? What was happening actually like a decade before, right? Because cancer isn't like the cold that you caught on Monday and manifest on Wednesday. This is about a decade's incubation. What was going on in the 70s and the 80s that made this hockey stick in the 80s and 90s? What was going on is that in urban areas of China and Japan and Singapore, in these wealthier Asian countries, they started to change their diets, first and foremost, to a westernized diet, and their lifestyle, their behaviors changed to chase our culture. And as a result, they caught our cancer. And for a perfect example is a study looking at Japanese immigrants to Hawaii in 1982 they had a 100% increase in breast cancer over their peers who stayed in Japan. I mean, that's incredible. When you look at how clear the role of diet and lifestyle plays for this disease of cancer that most people incorrectly just shrug and go, well, isn't it mostly genetic? Um, I agree with you completely and in fact, um in Japan, you're right that the as the diet westernized, meaning that they were eat, women started eating less and less rice, women and men eating less rice, less vegetables, more meat, more chicken. Dairy became a prominent part of the diet as well. Um, breast cancer rates went up. But if you look at, at it with a, a, a finer lens, what you also discover is women whose diets did not westernize, their breast cancer risk did not rise. Um, it was. It had to do specifically with the westernization of of the diet, and of course, there's many things that can be part of that. There's more fat. Uh, there's less fiber. You're losing antioxidants, and also as you start gaining weight, as Americans do, this is became a problem in Japan. Then, then increasing body weight will ultimately increase the risk of postmenopausal breast cancer. So it's it ends up being a perfect storm, unfortunately. Right. So. The biggest connection between weight and estrogen, which then goes on to feed and fuel 80% of all breast cancers, is the fat cell. So do you want to talk about how fat leads to an excess of estrogens way more than is needed to live a healthy life? Yeah, you know, people think of a fat cell as sort of an empty bag of calories, just sort of waiting there in case you need it. But but that fat cell has a much bigger opinion of itself. It's um, a living metabolizing factory. Um, and what your fat cells do is they take testosterone and androgens and convert, I'm talking about male hormones. You know, women and men have both have female and male hormones. Women have relatively little in the way of male hormones, but what they have 
goes through the fat cell and it's turned into estrogens. So you have more fat cells that that happens. By the way, it also happens to men. Um, go to the beach in August, uh, and the guy who's taking his shirt off and he has a little bit of breast development, um, he might have read online that that's from eating tofu. You know, soy causes man boobs. That's probably his idea. But you go you go to him and ask him. Say, um, how much tofu have you actually been eating this past week? Tofu, tofu, He's going to say, that is not me. I'm a burger guy. Um, what has happened in his body? It has nothing to do with soy. Soy does not cause man boobs. That's a myth. Um, what has happened is as he's gained weight, his body fat is producing estrogens from his own testosterone. The testosterone goes into the cell. Estrogens, specifically estradiol, comes out and it goes to his breast area and causes not just enlargement like body fat, but actual breast tissue. Um, so uh, estrogen is a sneaky thing. If you have a little bit too much of it, uh, it can go right through a breast cell. It penetrates then through the nucleus of the cell and can attach to your DNA. And it can damage that DNA producing a cancer cell. And once the cancer cells are formed, it can be like fertilizer on them, encouraging them to grow. So a little estrogen is totally normal for us. But if we have a little bit too much, it can create havoc. So if an excess is causing this, then a decrease in estrogen should then lower breast cancer incidence. And indeed, that is what we find. We've talked about then what can lower estrogen in terms of uh, not being overweight or eating more fiber, which then binds estrogen in your GI tract and you poop it out. Right. What else will lower estrogen? Um, there's a couple of other things. Um, one we don't fully understand, but just reducing the fat content of the diet does seem to lower estrogens too, independent of fiber. Researchers at Tufts University did this work years ago. They brought in 48 women. They locked them up. They were all in the hospital and they fed them a variety of different diets, some high fiber, high fat, high fiber, low fiber, high fat, low fat. And what they found is that they're independent. If you if you follow a healthy plant-based diet, but also reduce the fat, even vegetable oils, estrogen comes down. So, so we're now limiting the fats too. Um, the, the last thing though is dairy products. Uh, cows are impregnated every year on every dairy uh, because that maximizes their milk production. But a pregnant cow is pregnant, their, their gestation is about nine months, similar to a human in duration. And they're making estrogens that get into the milk. And when you turn milk into cheese, you concentrate it further. And it's only traces, but it, it is enough to uh, change a woman's estrogenic function. And there was a, a frightening study that looked at women who had previously been diagnosed with breast cancer. Those consuming the most of the high-fat dairy products, like whole milk and butter and cheese, uh, those consuming the most high-fat dairy products had a 49% higher risk of dying of their cancer compared to women who generally avoided those things. So uh, trimming away unwanted body weight, great. Boost the fiber. That means beans and vegetables and fruits and whole grains. Uh, avoiding, uh, limiting fats. And then also um, dairy, uh -uh, just have, have the, the non-dairy milks on your cereal, like almond milk or soy milk or whatever. Um, those are good choices. Right, and exercise decreases estrogen levels, it boosts your metabolism and helps maintain a healthy body weight, which then circles back around to the whole weight itch. I just love how it's all connected. <laughs> so uh, in my extensive research into the connection between diet and breast cancer, it, it, interestingly, it was the high fat dairy and not the low fat 
that had an all-cause mortality bump of 49%, actually, that was in the LACE study, Life After Cancer Epidemiology Study. Um, and the reason why seems to be that the estrogens are most concentrated in fat, so it has to do with eating the high fat as opposed to like non-fat or skim milk. But I learned actually in your book, Your Body in Balance, about a study from Dr. Kramer. And he looked at 26 or seven different countries and found a dairy connection to ovarian cancer. Can you please speak about that? This, nobody really predicted this. Um, in this case, what he was looking at was sugar. Um, the milk sugar is lactose. And I guess people have heard of lactose because if they're lactose intolerant, the milk sugar gives them bloating and gas. Um, but two things were very troubling. The first is um, they looked at fertility. Um, and in country, women tend to have their fertility diminish as they leave, say, their mid-20s to through their 30s and 40s, which is why a lot of women will say, you know, I... I'm kind of too young to have a child now. I want to work on my career, but I don't want to wait forever because my fertility will be less when I'm 40 than it is now. I get that. Um, what Kramer did was he looked at Thailand. Thailand is not a big dairy in country. And the drop in fertility between the late 20s and late 30s was about 25%. He looked at Brazil, more dairy, more cheese. The drop in fertility for women between the late 20s and late 30s, about 50%. He looked at the United States, the drop in fertility was about 80%. And then he put all the countries on a map, and it's not a perfect pattern, but generally you see that the more dairy people consume, the more they, fertility is lost. And what we believe is happening is that the lactose sugar breaks down in the body to release a smaller sugar called galactose that attacks the ovary. Then researchers in Scandinavia started looking at another ovarian problem that's much worse, and that's ovarian cancer. And it went right up with dairy. Uh, the more galactose exposure you have, that means milk, it means yogurt, it means ice cream. Uh, the more galactose exposure that, that you have, the higher the risk of uh, ovarian cancer. Uh, researchers in this, in this country looked then at African-American women who are at very high risk, found exactly the same thing. If you want something to splash on your cereal, go to the store and get soy milk, rice milk, hemp milk, oat milk, one of those. They don't have any lactose in them. And, and by the way, for people who, who had thought that soy might cause cancer. It, it actually does the opposite. Uh, researchers have looked at this and, and soy, product, soy consumption, uh, particularly very high soy consumption, appears to reduce breast cancer risk by roughly 30% and also reduce, reduces recurrence by about the same amount. Okay, so you just mentioned soy and I want to expand upon this because when I was writing Breast the Owner's Manual and I did a deep dive into the nutritional science to explain to the world why for 19 years straight I was telling every single one of my high-risk breast cancer patients to spit that miso out of your mouth because I knew it contained phytoestrogens, right? These plant-based estrogens, we don't know what that's doing in your body, just it's not for you, you can't have it. Okay, so said deep dive, oops, embarrassingly wrong. When I went to Proof with science why you should not eat soy. I realized that I could prove with tons of science why you should absolutely consume two to three servings of soy a day, especially in adolescence. It even has more of a protective effect. So it wasn't just that it was safe or neutral. Soy consumption literally decreases the incidence of breast cancer in high versus low consumers and in women already affected by breast cancer 
estrogen driven or not, there's dramatically less recurrence and death from breast cancer for those who consume soy. So I would love if another learned scholar such as yourself would please give an explanation as to why soy is in fact a very healthful and safe food to consume for women of all ages and for men. And hopefully between you and me and all of the other doctors in this and, and nutritionists in this whole food plant-based movement, uh, we can stop vilifying soy and give it its rightful place in our diets. Right. Um, well, first of all, thank you for asking that. It's, it's, it's a peculiar thing. It's one of these myths that lives on, uh, where if you go on the internet, you'll hear somebody saying that soy has estrogens in it that could give you cancer. And if you, if you've got cancer, if you have cancer already, it will cause it to progress or something like that. And that just kind of persists. Now I have to say in the scientific world, the world of cancer researchers, they know that that is not true. But for some reason, that myth just lives on. So uh, why is soy good? Well, well, the first reason is kind of obvious. If you're having soy bacon instead of pig bacon, um, it's soy is not meat. So you're, you're skipping all the bad parts of meat. Meat has carcinogens in it as you cook it. With soy, uh, if you cook soy, it gets warm. You know, it, it, does, it doesn't form heterocyclic amines that happen when you cook chicken or, 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 or pork or other meats. Um, but, but there's more to it. Um, in the 1930s, researchers discovered isoflavones like genistein and, and others. And they're in soy and they're in some other foods too. Um, and they do attach in certain circumstances to estrogen receptors. And back then people were kind of unsophisticated. They thought there's maybe only one type of estrogen receptor and if it attaches, then it's probably gonna cause the cancer to accelerate. Um, uh, however, <laughs> that's not what happened. Um, we've, had plenty, we've had plenty of time to test this. And there have been many, many studies, and they are very consistent and very clear. And that is that if you look at women who consume a lot of soy, and I'm speaking specifically not about people in Fargo where I grew up, because they're just not eating much soy, but you could go to, to Tokyo or, or uh, Shanghai or where, where people are consuming enormous amounts of soy and compare them to women who are, for whatever reason, avoiding soy. And what you find is very striking that the women consuming the most soy products, and I'm speaking of tofu, uh, tempeh, soy milk, edamame, uh, miso, those women consuming the most soy have the least risk of, can of getting cancer, and it's stepwise. Um, if the women consuming the most, they cut their cancer risk by about, about a third, about 30%, something like that. And then, as you said, if women have been diagnosed with breast cancer in the past, and let's say they're well-meaning but ill-informed oncologists said, I read somewhere you shouldn't have soy. The women who follow that advice and don't have soy die at the quickest rate. The women who consume the most soy will reduce their mortality by about 30%. Now, of course, every population is a little bit different, but that's a good uh, general number. And this is true if you have an estrogen receptor positive tumor or an estrogen receptor negative tumor. Um, and the, what we've come to realize is that you don't have just one kind of estrogen receptor. Think of your car. If you put your foot down in your car, well, if you hit the gas, you're going to go. But if you put your foot down in your car and you hit the brake, you stop. So soy hits the brake. And what I have have described about soy reducing the likelihood of developing cancer and improving survival that's not controversial. 
Um, you don't read that online, and I, I'm sure people come into your office, they haven't heard this, but when we talk to cancer researchers, they all know this. Um, and they, we, everyone shakes their head saying, why does this mythology uh, uh, online not go away? But anyway, soy is okay. Now, soy is optional, you don't have to have it, um, but um, it's handy. And you can, it ranges from something like edamame, which is pretty much entirely unprocessed, to something like tempeh, which is fermented, to things like soy milk and tofu, where you're grinding it up a little bit more. And then people will turn it into sausage and bacon, and one day they'll probably make snow tires out of it. Who knows? It's very, um, uh, uh, it's very easy to manip manipulate food, but it does not cause cancer, nor does it cause man boobs, nor does it cause infertility or, or any of those issues. And, and by the way, I say this, I say this, I have no financial stake in the soy industry or anything like that. And I, I'm not pushing people to necessarily have it, but but it does not cause these problems. And and as far as reducing the risk, and, and by the way, not just not just uh, breast cancer, but for men with prostate cancer, there's signs of benefit as well. Um, so I would encourage people to, to include it in their diet. Excellent explanation. Thank you for Sorry. helping me with that soy topic. <laughs> All right, now I'd like to talk about hot flashes. And as long as we're talking hot flashes, let's just throw in a little mm, vaginal dryness, decreased libido, itchy skin, thinning hair, mood swings, weight gain, AKA menopause. <laughs> so I'm gonna quote you, I love this. You say, when it comes to menopause, why is it treated like a colossal goof of nature that medical science needs to rectify with pharmaceuticals? I love that. Why, why is it? I mean, I'm 50 and the national average for menopause is 51 and 10 months. I'm just going to bank on that, that I've got a couple of years left. But, um, you know, it, it, it's true that menopause is... Um, like a bad word that needs to be fixed. It's not natural and it needs to be undone. Why is that the pervasive thought surrounding menopause? Yeah, I have to say, I, I blame some of the writers from the 1970s that would write books like Forever Feminine. And, and it turned out that some of these people were being paid by um, hormone manufacturers. And they would surprise, oh, surprise. I, I, I'm not kidding. Um, and the whole idea was that uh, uh, you shouldn't uh, that menopause is a mistake, um, and that if if a woman will continue to take hormones, that she'll be feminine forever. And, and, and it was a lot of mythology. And and I think one of the most distressing things that I would read, and and that some people still believe, is that that human lifespan. Uh, centuries ago, they would say the average lifespan might only be 40 or 50. And so if a woman is now 51 or 52, frankly, you're, you're past your sell-by date. You ought to be dead now anyway. And so needless to say, your ovaries aren't going to make any estrogen. And let me just be clear, that is complete and utter hooey. There is nothing to that at all. Um, there have always been women living into their 80s and 90s and 100s and beyond. And it, it is true that lifespan on average is getting longer simply because there's less infant mortality and and so forth than there used to be. So average and death life, during childbirth was a big problem, right? Exactly. Right. So 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 there was a lot of death early in life. So the average age of of death is is increasing as we solve these these childhood problems and early adulthood problems. Um, but no, it, menopause 
is the other, the flip side of menarche. Um, nature figured that estrogen, estrogens are kind of dicey substances. Um, estrogens are there to promote, among other things, reproductive health. And yet they're also dangerous. If you have a little bit too much or too many waves of them month after month after month, those estrogen molecules can sneak through the breast cells and cause cancer. So nature, I'm going to suggest, um, put two and two together and said, we're going to have this reproductive window be relatively short. So we're not going to start when you're three and four years old. We're going to wait until later. And then we're going to have menopause when now you're at a time where you don't need a toddler on your kitchen floor anymore. You have other things to do. So that's all menopause is. It's saying, all right, uh, factory's closed. Let's get on with our other work. And uh, But it is true that all kinds of symptoms can occur. And it's interesting when you look in Japan, uh, there was no uh, word for hot flashes back in the 1950s and 60s. And, and it's, it's a funny thing. Um, this was back when there was very little breast cancer. Um, and there was really not much meat consumption and uh, almost no dairy in the diet. It was a heavy rice-based diet and a fair amount of soy as well. Um, and researchers were wondering if, if hot flashes really were rare in Japan because they're all over the place in the United States. And the idea was maybe women are just reticent to talk about it. So researchers would ask in tremendous detail, what symptoms do you have? And the women would say, well, you know, when I went through the transition, my back was a little sore. But, but you know, it was, it was really mo very modest, very mild symptoms. But as the diet westernized, not only did breast cancer increase, as we were describing, uh, but you also started seeing hot flashes coming up. And uh, depression uh, became a much more uh, frequent occurrence. And we haven't pulled all the, all the logic together on why this is all occurring. But probably the prevailing theory is this, that a westernized diet causes the body to accommodate to successive waves of higher amounts of estrogen. The body gets used to that. And then at menopause, the change is a bit of a shock to the body. And we've been programmed for, to deal with these higher levels, and now we've got much lower levels, and it takes a long time uh, for the body to, to get through that. Oh, now, whether that's exactly the truth or not, we don't know, but what we do see is that for women who have been on healthy plant-based diets arriving at menopause, uh, their experience of it is often much, much better um, than it would be otherwise. So who knows? Right. Well, but for, for many women, plant-based or not, yeah. uh, symptoms are not always um, non-existent. In other words, certain things like a, a dry vagina and, and dyspareunia, painful intercourse, can be very sure. problematic and or... Um, you know, other, other symptoms that just destroy your quality of life. So the problem with HRT, of course, is that it works. It works on basically any reason that a woman would be taking these pills or creams, what have you. Um, whenever I see a woman who's on HRT, I always just ask her, why? Why are you on HRT? Because oftentimes it's an answer that has a better, different solution. So osteoporosis, for example. Well, you know, my mom had it and I have it. Okay, well, rather than being on HRT just de facto, what about trying weight-bearing exercises or bisphosphonates, right? We've got certain foods, so we could work on it that way. Or uh, hot flashes, we've got exercise, increasing soy consumption. Pink Lotus Elements actually has scoured the earth and found this amazing 
uh, three Asian herb blend called Menopause Miracle. It's been studied in three randomized controlled trials in women against placebo. It's safe, doesn't increase estrogen, actually improves osteoporosis and lipid profile. So acupuncture is another help for hot flashes. It basically comes down to an individual conversation um, to understand why a woman is on HRT and what alternatives might be in existence that are proven to, to work. However, having said all of that, knowing that for almost every symptom, there's like a equal and opposite natural um, thing that we can try instead of these pills and creams, uh, they work, right? And the physician who's hearing these complaints from a woman is more often than not just going to write that prescription because it's easier for them and they know it's going to work and keep the lady out of the office with the same complaints next visit. And on her end, it's something fairly easy and reliable to do, right? You pop the pill, swallow it down, rather than implementing lifestyle change, weight loss, exercise. People find lifestyle changes difficult to implement and maintain. What say you? Um, well, it sort of works. Um, uh, hot flashes and so forth will be remarkably better when a person's on HRT. However, pretty soon they're gonna have a discussion with the doctor who says, I don't dare continue this because I'm by, by continuing writing these prescriptions for you, your breast cancer rate is gonna go up. Um, and, and in fact, when the Women's Health Initiative showed that, that HRT greatly increased the risk of breast cancer, and then when those results came out, women stopped taking it, and breast cancer rates plummeted um, as a result of that. So, so doctors all know this. So the doctor is going to say, we, we, we can only do this temporarily. And when the doctor stops writing the prescription, then it all happens. Um, the, for many women, they've just delayed the hot flashes. They haven't really stopped them. So if let's say a woman is having um, vaginal dryness and, and, and painful intercourse. If she's going to use um, an estrogenic product, I would suggest, I guess I would suggest two things. Um, one is don't use the animal-derived one, which is Premarin, which comes from the urine of pregnant. It, it gets its name from pregnant mare's urine. Um, all the other brands are not animal-derived, so that's the first thing. But secondly, it doesn't have to be one that you swallow. Um, there are just local applications that you can use, um, and you use the smallest amount. Uh, is, it, is it risky? Um, my guess is that some of it is absorbed. Uh, but probably n nowhere near the amount that it would be from the pill that you actually swallow. Um, the other tip is don't use it as a sexual lubricant. Um, use it at another time of day uh, because your partner is going to absorb it probably as well. Um, so anyway, uh, that's uh, I think that's, that's kind of about it with regard to menopause. I really like what you're saying is look at the symptoms that are bothering women. For many women, the transition is fine and they're, they're doing perfectly well. Um, for other women, they do, they do have some symptoms and you, and you tackle it symptom by symptom rather than saying, I'm going to take this potentially toxic pharmaceutical and, and uh, hope that I don't get cancer. Yeah, it's an individualized conversation. And, um, you know, that takes time, it takes time. And doctors are, you know, squished into this narrow little window of time that is probably better spent talking about your high blood pressure or, oh, next topic, diabetes. So um, I know that your father was an internal medicine doctor, I believe in the 1950s, and he eschewed a ranching career, which was the likely inheritance from the family. And he had a large internal medicine practice that included a lot of diabetics. 
So diabetes is affecting literally 10% of all Americans over the age of 20, which is a ridiculous statistic. That means 29.1 million people have diabetes in the US and another 8.1 million are either pre-diabetic or undiagnosed, like they just don't know they actually have diabetes. So how many times when you were growing up did your dad come home and sit down at the dinner table and proudly declare, son, guess what? I cured another diabetic today. Not only did that never happen, but it was never even an expectation. Um, my, my dad came home every night about six o'clock. He'd set his bag, his bag down. He'd come to the dinner table or read the paper or whatever. And I never once did he ever say, this is a man who spent all day, every day treating patients with diabetes. I never ever once heard him say, I made somebody's diabetes go away. Their, 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 their goal was to just slow the, the progression. Uh, diabetes, in fact, they would even say, once you're diabetic, you'll always be diabetic. Um, and they would, that was, you probably heard that in medical school too. And the reason that, that they would, people would say that is they wanted the, it was, they wanted patients to take it seriously. You know, you always need to be careful about your diet. You need your medication. So they would say, once you're diabetic, you're always diabetic. And I have to say, I considered it the most boring disease uh, as a clinician because nobody ever got better. It was just a lot of monitoring and so forth. And I had no intention of becoming an expert in this whatsoever. Um, but one thing led to another and I happened to just discover that you could use diets to, to get this other hormone in balance, and that's insulin. And my first study was really small. It was 13 people that I partnered with an endocrinologist at Georgetown University here in DC. And we, I, we just wanted to test this. And it, it just blew everything out of the water. Um, what we were doing is we were using, frankly, the same kind of diet that I described for cramps, only in this case, what we're doing is, is we are getting insulin working and we found people would reduce their amount of insulin, uh, their blood sugars would fall, in some cases they would get off their doses completely. And so then NIH gave us a grant in 2003 that said, like, let's do this seriously. And we took the best current diet and we compared it to this intervention, which was vegan and no added fat, basically. A few other changes, but that was basically it. And it was, the, the, the conventional diet was good. You know, people did, did lose weight and their blood sugars came down but the plant-based diet was 300% better. And it was better in every way. People would lose more weight with it, despite the fact they weren't cutting calories at all, as far as they knew. Their, their A1Cs got better, their ability to reduce their medications improved. And that's when I started seeing something I, I was completely unprepared for. And my dad never, never, ever had during his life, which is I started seeing patients where the diabetes was cured. And I gotta tell you, Christy, I was, in this office pacing around in I think 2004, 2005 with a lab slip in my hand from a man who had come in with out of control diabetes. He'd had it for years. And in the course of the study, he had lost weight, he lost 60 pounds. His, uh, his, his own doctor had stopped his medication and I had his lab slip that showed his blood sugar numbers were completely and entirely normal, not even in the pre-diabetes range. And so I kept racking my brain for about 20 minutes saying, can I tell him this? Can I tell him you don't have diabetes? Because people got angry about that. But of course now, I mean, it's funny to say now because we see it all the time. Now everybody accepts that diabetes is, it's a two way street. It could get worse, it could get better. Sometimes you can get rid of it. But, but the other thing is important to be concerned about is it, it, it will wait for you. 
if you, if you've reversed it, but then you say, I'm fine. Hey, let me go back to pork chops and steak and chicken wings. You can get diabetes again. But the good news is you can dial this in. You can get your body in balance. That's estrogen. That's thyroid hormone. That's insulin. Let's get it back into balance so that you don't have to have this disease. Right. And that's still a message that those viewing us really need to understand because I'm sure everybody knows or even loves a diabetic or pre-diabetic and this is such a pervasive illness that um, doesn't have to be the way it is. So those of us in the trenches know perfectly well that a whole food plant-based diet can literally reverse diabetes and all of the attendant illnesses and problems that go with it. I mean, high blood pressure, heart attack, neuropathy, amputation, blindness, and death. <laughs> so, you know, even people's physicians don't understand the power of food. So for better or worse, diabetics and pre-diabetics need to be their own best advocates for health and engage a whole food plant-based diet and then go back to their doctors and have them draw their hemoglobin A1C and be like, wait, how is this normal in four weeks? We better draw it again. Definitely a lab error. <laughs> um, it does drive you crazy because our research um, was funded by the federal government. Um, and it was carefully peer reviewed before we did it. And then after we had our results, we published the results in many publications, but the very first one to publish it was the American Diabetes Association in their journal Diabetes Care, which is the number one journal for for, for diabetologists. And we presented it at the ADA. So, and no one has ever said that there's that it's not right. I mean, it's clearly true, but you find yourself wondering why are people not applying it more because the patients absolutely adore it. Um, I mean, think what it's like to not have diabetes anymore. I mean, it's the most wonderful feeling. But can, can I say something really quick? I, I wanna give two other applications for this. One is type one diabetes. Um, people who have type one, the, the pancreas isn't making insulin anymore. Um, so they're often a, afraid of being on a diet that's, that's high in grains and beans and vegetables. But work with your, your endocrinologist and try a very low fat, healthy plant-based diet. Two things happen. One is that insulin requirements will drop, oh, it varies, but it could be 30, 40%. Um, and, and secondly, the risk of complications is likely to be much, much less uh, because you've taken the cholesterol and saturated fat out of your diet. The other thing is for a woman who has PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome, um, do this same diet. And you think, wait a minute, I don't have diabetes. Why are you giving me a diabetic diet? And it's three things. It's no animal products, it's low oil, and third, healthy carbohydrates. I call it low glycemic index. So instead of white bread, have uh, rye or pumpernickel bread. Instead of white rice, have brown rice. Ha have foods that don't elevate the blood sugar too much. That combination doesn't just help diabetes, it also helps PCOS. Um, so anyway, give it a try. All the side effects are good ones. Exactly. And then with type one diabetes, don't we think it's more of an autoimmune disorder, like your own antibodies attacking the beta cells of the pancreas? So well, it is. perhaps could it be that what is consumed during infancy and childhood predicting or, or contributing to type 1 diabetes? Um, uh, yes, I think so. But let, let me be clear about what I was saying now. I was saying for a person who has type 1 diabetes, the, 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 the beta cells in the pancreas have been killed off. 
Um, and so they, they will have to inject insulin. Um, but what we've discovered is that the amount of insulin that they need appears to be substantially less when they're on the low-fat vegan diet. And what we this isn't rocket science. What we think is happening is that they were insulin resistant, just like a person with type 2, um, but they're also injecting insulin. And so the insulin that they are injecting goes a lot further if they're no longer insulin resistant. Um, but you asked the question about preventing in the first place. Um, we need more research here. Uh, there has been some evidence that when kids are not exposed to dairy protein in particular, um, early in life, their incidence of type one diabetes might drop. Now we need more research. The research that has been done on this has been very dicey because it's really hard to find kids who haven't been exposed to dairy proteins. Um, they're getting it either um, through baby formula uh, or they're getting it through cow's milk their mothers give them after they're weaned, or um, they, they're even getting it from mother's breast milk. If if the mother was drinking cow's milk during her uh, lactation, some of the dairy proteins will actually get into her breast milk. So we need more research, but um, my guess is that if women breastfeed and, and neither the woman nor her baby ever consumes cow's milk, my guess is that we will reduce the incidence of this disease. So. Obviously, one in eight is a stat that I have ingrained in my head since one in eight women eventually gets breast cancer. But one in eight women also have some form of thyroid disease. In fact, 20 million people have either hyper or hypothyroidism, and women are five to eight times more likely than men to have a thyroid disorder. Um, I would love for you to explain to people, number one, what symptoms to look for that might be a sign of hyper or hypothyroidism. And number two, if you could explain how a plant-based diet can reverse these symptoms, but just as importantly, how an animal-centric diet can exacerbate them. You know, the, the thyroid is, is a puzzling organ. It's, it's very humble and shy. It sits here on the base of your neck and nobody knows it's there. Um, and what often happens is extremely subtle. Um, you're feeling weaker and fatigued and you think, well, you know, I'm, I'm a busy person. You're a little bit sensitive to cold. Um, you're gaining a little bit of weight. You're constipated. Uh, you go to the doctor and the doctor thinks, well, you know, join the crowd. Everybody has these problems. And they say, no, this is real. My skin seems to be changing. My, my hair is kind of dry and so forth. So at some point, the doctor says, let's do a blood test. And the, the doctor draws uh, tests that look at, at thyroid hormone. Your thyroid produces thyroid hormone, which goes to all the cells of the body, and it's there to give them energy. And the, the doctor can discover that you are, are low in thyroid hormone. Now, you could also be high in thyroid uh, hormone. It's hyperthyroidism, and it's kind of the opposite. Um, typically, people have weight loss, although once in a while they'll have weight gain, perhaps because they're driven to being overeating or whatever. But they will feel revved up. They will feel often uh, nervous and irritable. Their pulse, if you take the pulse, it actually can be faster. They'll feel warm. Um, at night, they try to lie down, and they're tossing and turning, not sleeping. They're just revved up. Um, so... Why do these things happen? Um, the biggest reason for hypothyroidism around the world, outside of the United States, the biggest reason is just a lack of iodine. To make thyroid hormone, the thyroid gland needs iodine. Um, and iodine happens to be in sea vegetables. There's lots of it. Um, 
but and many seaweed like a little nori sushi yeah ex ex exactly you go to the sushi bar that nor don't have the fish sushi unless you're really well insured but you have the cucumber roll or the asparagus roll that nori that wraps it is loaded with iodine uh the wakame the the, the little stringy seaweed that's in the miso soup um arame all of these they have natural iodine in them but if you've been neglecting them People can run low in iodine, they'll run low in thyroid. Now, the reason this doesn't happen so much in the U.S. is that back in 1924, the Morton Company put out iodized salt. That's the blue canister with the girl with the umbrella. Um, <laughs> Little umbrella. That's, yeah. the, that's the one. Um, and that pretty much wiped out um, thyroid uh, uh, iodine deficiency for the people who are using it. But nowadays, if you're having Himalayan salt or, or, or sea salt, that actually doesn't have iodine in it. So bring the sea vegetables back into your diet. But, th but there's a bigger reason. And the biggest reason in, in the United States, um, because iodine isn't so much of a reason, the big reason here is something is attacking the thyroid. And that something is antibodies. Antibodies are little microscopic torpedoes that are made by your immune system. And they're made to attack viruses that get into your body. Or, or bacteria or other foreign objects. And so th that gets into your body, your body makes these torpedoes and kills them off. For some reason, antibodies are attacking your thyroid. Now they can make the thyroid ineffective so it doesn't produce thyroid hormone. Or they can attack the, the regulatory system so that your thyroid doesn't shut off and you're making too much. You're, you're hyperthyroid. Thyroid. So in either case, Hashimoto's uh, thyroiditis, that's the low thyroid, or Graves' disease, that's the high thyroid, um, they're both antibody reactions. So researchers said, okay, you know, we've known for a long time that antibody reactions are sometimes triggered by food. Um, we've seen this with rheumatoid arthritis. We've seen it with asthma. We've seen it with other things. And so the question is, what about the thyroid? And researchers looked especially at the Adventist population. They're, they're a great population to study. They're all teetotalers, they're all non-smokers, very health conscious, but some of them eat dairy, some don't, some have meat, some don't. And what they found is really striking is that the group that had the most hypothyroidism, where they were most likely to get it, were lacto-ovo-vegetarians. So they weren't eating meat, but they were kind of doubling up on the cheese and, and the, dairy, the dairy. Which is 10 times the milk. So they were at the, at, they were they were at the, the worst, and the vegans had the lowest. The, the people who, who didn't eat any animal products, vegans, had the lowest risk of hypothyroidism. Then when it came to hyperthyroidism, once again the vegans did the best, but now it was the omnivores who were the worst, um, and the dairy consumers were, but who didn't have meat were kind of in the middle. We haven't really sorted out why that why that is, and frankly we need more research on this. But um, the the take home message seems to be that this is an autoimmune condition, just like many others. And for a variety of reasons, taking animal proteins out of the diet seems to make it calm down. Now, the next step is you're seeing, well, does this really happen? And no one, to my knowledge, has yet done a randomized clinical trial, which I think needs to be done, where you bring in hypothyroid people and you just randomize half of them to a vegan diet and half not. Where we are now is what we're seeing is we're just collecting lots and lots of individual cases. And, and, and they're striking. Um, I was speaking not too long ago at a conference and a surgeon came up to me, a neurosurgeon named Mike. Um, he's around 50 years old. And year after year on his physical exam, his thyroid was coming out kind of low. 
and he was gaining a little bit of weight. He was a little sluggish. And after five years of this, his doctor said, the, the test they use is TSH, or thyroid stimulating hormone. And the, 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 the test results showed he was clearly hypothyroid. But before he started thyroid replacement hormone, he started the, the kind of diet we've been talking about, a healthy plant-based diet. And very rapidly, within a matter of weeks, his, his TSH value started normalizing again. And what we presume is happening is that the, the antibody reaction is stopping. And so he, his numbers came absolutely normal. He lost seven or eight pounds, which he thought, oh, that's nice. Um, and his energy to return to normal, he's a healthy guy. Um, and uh, on the other side of the coin, there's a, a film producer named Wendy uh, who I've talked, these are real people, and I describe their, their stories in Your Body in Balance. Um, she was hyper, very hyper, and she knew something was wrong, and her doctor did quickly diagnose hyperthyroidism, which they normally use uh, uh, radioactive iodine or other pretty tough treatments uh, for hyperthyroidism. As fate would have it, she happened to go to a nutrition lecture, and a doctor was, was talking about a healthy vegan diet, and she said, let me try it and very rapidly her symptoms would uh, resolve too. So whether this is an unusual case or whether this is the norm, we really don't know yet. But what we do know is that is that you do need iodine in your diet, eat your sea vegetables, you can get the animal products out of your diet, all the side effects are good, and it may well calm down the thyroid. And why wouldn't it? I mean, based on everything we've talked about so far today, uh, eating a plant-based diet helps slow, stop, and even reverse things like infertility and PMS and uh, impotence, cancer, breast, prostate, ovarian, oh, and when you read this book, get out of tissue because there, there is a very sad story about this man with advanced metastatic prostate cancer who literally reverses it to undetectable by eating a plant-based diet. And then he decides to be his own N of one, right? Just a study of himself. He wants to say, is it really, really the plants? And he goes back to eating meat and just precipitously, the cancer returns with a vengeance and takes his life. It was just so tragic to read that. But it's also powerful to realize not only the power of plants, but the power that our own decisions play in our health destiny. And, um, you know, the, the plants have just so many health benefits and little to nothing negative beside probably gas and bloating, right? And then how negatively animal proteins and fats impact our bodies and our cells. So I, um, yes, what? No, no, no. go ahead. Uh, I was just gonna say really quickly, um, for many of us, I think, including me, I, I had thought of a plant-based diet or a vegan diet as sounding a little bit of extreme. Um, but what you discover is it means instead of meat chili, you have bean chili, or instead of um, uh, meat sauce on or Alfredo on your pasta, you have the tomato sauce on your pasta. And so simple changes. But what I was going to say is that uh, a vegan diet isn't doesn't feel like the extreme end of your ex exploration. It's kind of the beginning of it. Once you get the animals off your plate, then you can decide, do I want to do other things too? Um, do I want to also keep oils low? Should I go organic? Uh, do I want to avoid gluten or does gluten not matter? Um, but if you haven't taken the first step of getting the animals off your plate, you're going to find that it's really harder to make progress. So, so go ahead and explore it. 
and then follow the healthiest plant-based diet you can. This is not a, a candy, a junk food diet. This is a time to really power on the healthy foods. Exactly. And you and I have talked about this, and, and together we have forged a new campaign that debuted in 2019 and will continue annually ad infinitum called Let's Beat Breast Cancer. And you can go there now, letsbeatbreastcancer.org, and, and sign up to take a pledge. And what that pledge is, is to follow what our heavily researched opinion has concluded are the four most contributory things toward breast cancer, if you're doing it wrong, or away from breast cancer if you're doing it right. So those things, if you envision them on a scale, on a balance, the boulders in life that really tip those scales are going to be diet and nutrition, alcohol, exercise, and weight. So having said that, what about pebbles? What about grains of sand? What about some other things? If you've really kind of perfected those, you're like, hey, you know what? I'm an ideal body weight. I eat all plant-based. I exercise five hours a week just sauntering around or two and a half figures. Like, Doc, I've really got those boulders off my scale. I'm looking pretty good here, but I want to even more maximally reduce my risk of disease. So can we do anything else? And it turns out, yes, we can. But again, if you've got a boulder, if you are overweight and sedentary, that what I term pebbles or even grains of sand that come in the form of emotional stress or environmental toxicities are just simply not heavy enough to tip the scales any more than they are already tipped. But for those who kind of have it down and these small or not so small as the case may be, environmental toxicities are going to impact their lives. You have a, a gorgeous, robust chapter at the end of your book that details out a lot of these endocrine disrupting compounds, right? We live with them ubiquitously. These EDCs are everywhere, and yet we can decrease our contact with them. So I would love it if you would share a quote unquote favorite chemical or two that people should minimize in their lives. Some of these have been really very striking. And there was a, an amazing study that was done using Progresso soup. Uh, these were Harvard researchers, and they asked a group of volunteers to eat a can of Progresso soup. Now, Progresso sounds like a great brand. Um, sounds like it might be Italian. The can is a little bit bigger, so it's got to be good. Um, and, but what, and, and it's a fine soup. Um, but what they found was that in urine testing, uh, the research subjects had something in their in their urine, which is called BPA or bisphenol A. And so they said, all right, let's do the experiment again. And now let's make soup that's not from a can, uh, just make it from scratch, same kind of soup, vegetable soup. And they didn't have any BPA in their urine. So where was the BPA coming from? It's coming from the can, the lining inside the can it has BPA in it and it leaches into the, the, the soup. Um, so if you're concerned about that, the question is, is, is what will it do? And it appears to be an endocrine disruptor. There was some question about sexual side effects and estrogenic effects. I think it's debatable how dangerous it is. The Progresso company at first started to say, I don't think it's such a big deal. But then government regulators have said, maybe if you're a kid, maybe it is a big deal. And so they've been encouraging a move away from BPA. So you go to the, the health food store. And you'll find cans that say BPA-free. 
And so you get one of those and you go to the checkout and you buy a whole bunch of BPA free cans and then you pay for your pay with your credit card. And as you walk out, the credit card, the credit card receipt, it's thermal paper that is coated with BPA, which is now leaking into your skin. It's going through your skin. And so you crumble it up and throw it out. And now more of it is coming through the palm of your hand. And this is almost a ubiquitous substance. So anyway, um, I personally, I think it's hard to know for sure how big of a deal a deal BPA is. I think with you, as you said, I don't think it's a boulder. I think it's a pebble. But on the other hand, I don't want pebbles either if they're dangerous. So to, we, we can choose uh, to avoid these things. Um, perhaps more worrisome is pesticides are used all the time. Um, and you smell them sometimes when you go by somebody's lawn or on the golf course or, or, or everywhere. Um, and you don't even have to do that. If you're buying produce, it may be pesticide treated. Um, so the question is, does it matter? And my feeling is it does matter. Um, so what do you do about it? Uh, I think there are two things that one can do. The first is you buy organic um, wherever you can. And organic 15 years ago was something that was maybe more rare and considerably more expensive. And sometimes it still is. But the prices are going down. The availability is increasing dramatically. And from my standpoint, it's a question of do you want food with chemicals or food without chemicals? Um, and I, I always buy organic if I can. But the second thing is to look where does it really matter? Um, the uh, Environmental Working Group, EWG, has a nice list that they publish every year of their the dirty dozen. And they talk about the foods where buying organic really matters. And where it's less likely to matter for a food where, let's say, I don't eat the peel. So I get an avocado, I'm not going to eat the peel, or a pineapple or something like that. But if it's a blueberry, I'm, I'm not going to peel the blueberry, I'm going to eat that. So you want an organic one. Um, uh, plants that are very fragile. Spinach, for example, you can imagine the insects tearing it up pretty easily, whereas they're going to have a lot more trouble getting at a potato. Um, so certain of these foods are more often pesticide treated and others, even if they're not called organic, the farmers just don't use a lot of pesticides. So um, if we use these kind of simple guidelines, you do your best. Now, if the food that you're getting is either not organic because it, that's your only choice or you're in a restaurant, and you just have no way of eating uh, no way of knowing if it's organic or not eat your vegetables, eat your fruits. If you're unsure, it is way better to eat conventionally grown produce, vegetables and fruits, than it is to eat meat products, dairy products, and so forth, for, for two reasons. One is the vegetables and fruits have fiber and lots of and antioxidants and benefits. Um, but the other is, not only do animal products not have those benefits, what has the cow been eating? Um, cows and pigs and chickens are typically eating GMO soy or GMO corn or other products that you wouldn't want to put in your own mouth. And then when people uh, harvest those products or take them, whatever, um, it's frankly the worst choice in the grocery store. So go organic if you can. If you can't, still you still want to eat your produce. Right. So if you have an inorganic, right, a non-organic bowl of strawberries, which generally have the highest pesticide count, versus an organic grass-fed beef burger, I, I mean. <laughs> oh, with, 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 with no question. And, and by the way, the, the cow, even if she's eating organic stuff, is making chemicals in her own body um, that get into, uh, for, you know, cows make estrogens that get into the, into, into the meat or, and, and particularly, in, and, but to a trivial degree, but to a, a real degree into the dairy. Thank you so much, Dr. Barnard, for the time you spent today.
I really want to encourage all of our viewers to rush out and pre-order or order your body in balance and don't just receive it and put it on your little pretty shelf of books, but actually read and devour it and put into action the principles here. They're so easy to apply to your life and could really transform your health and those of people that you love and bring you just more joy and longevity in this lifetime. So your body in balance. Before you go, Dr. Barnard, one last thing. I'm so proud of everything that PCRM stands for and all the work they do, and I'm excited to be a small part of it. And one thing that I'm very passionate about came about last year. Congratulations to you and all of those working on this initiative to bring a vegan entree option to all hospitals and all prisons in the state of California signed into law. However, there was one little, little group very near and dear to my heart, having 10-year-old triplet boys, that was left off of the list. And that would be offering a vegan entree in our public schools. Can you talk about how that might change in the near future? Um, it's, it's a big political battle, um, really, because schools have a lot of kids in the schools. And so that means a big contract for whoever feeds them. And so it's the most amazing thing. You could go to the School Nutrition uh, Association conference every year and every vendor is fighting for space. Um, and so what that means is that kids are often eating foods that are not the healthiest for them. Um, that's harmful to them as kids, but more importantly, it sets them up for having bad habits as adults. So there are a lot of kids who want to eat in a healthier way and even more parents who wish their kids would eat in a healthier way. And so there is a bill in the legislature now in, in California um, that would uh, that would incentivize healthier foods. And frankly, I, I believe that, frankly, schools should just be required, uh, whether they're incentivized or not, to serve healthy foods to every single child. Um, you would revolutionize the next generation if we could do that. So anyway, stay tuned. You'll see lots more information at PCRM.org, and I'm hoping that we're going to win this soon. Yes, we will. Mm -hmm. Dr. Barnard, thank you so much. Well, thank you. And I, I want to say a special thank you. You know, in, in a medical practice, you can see as many patients as you can. But when you go online and reach people all over the world, you'll, have, you'll never know how many people you educate, how many you inspire. But I guarantee you it's enormous. And the lives that you save in this way is just wonderful. So my hat is off to you for all the wonderful things that you have done. And thank you for letting me thank be part you. of it. So we always conclude Cancer Kicking Pow Wow with this little one-two punch saying, take that, cancer. So <laughs> are you ready to do that with me? <laughs> I'm going to do okay. my best. Ready? One, two, three. Take that, cancer. cancer. <laughs> <laughs>